Well, I'm glad that you're with us today. And as much as I wanted to be back in person today, this is a blessing that we get to come together like this. I really do hope that you are warm and dry and safe and that the complications of this past week have not been overwhelming. I know for many they were discouraging, but I've been praying for you. And again, as Scott said earlier, we as a leadership team, we're praying for you. The elders are praying. And we're, we're looking to reach out and find if there's any needs out there that we can meet. Last week, because it got interrupted, we felt that it was appropriate to press pause on this series, The Best Gift Ever, and then come back to it today. Again, we'd hoped we'd be back in person today, but we wanted to continue with this series. And at the beginning, I just want to say so much of an appreciation to so many people as I've had a chance to be exploring this material and doing this study and prepping for this, this is one of the most extensive preps that I've done for a sermon series. And I'm grateful for so many that have shared with me and taught me, whether through their books or their preaching. Guys like Rick Atchley and Jordan Hubbard that taught me not only um, about the Holy Spirit, but also how to preach about the Holy Spirit. And guys like Scott McKnight and N.T. Wright, whose books I've enjoyed. I also want to appreciate the staff and the ministry. We've been involved in several discussions about this over the last several months, and that has so shaped me. And what I want to share with you and has really filled me up in so many ways, and I'm grateful for that, as well as our elders. They have encouraged me. We've been looking at this material together as an eldership and as a ministry staff and their prayers are behind this, and I'm so grateful to be continuing this today. So, I hope that you've got your Bible. I'm going to go through several different Scripture references today, and I hope you'll take notes. I hope you get comfortable and settled into this. Uh, so, be with the Bible. We're going to be in John 14 through 16 for a lot of this, but I'm going to go some different places as well. I'm going to start off by telling you about an Easter. We're almost up on Easter. In fact, we were talking today, it's about a year Almost a year, about three weeks from now, it'll be a year since we first started this live stream because of the whole COVID uh, pandemic. And <clears throat> then we had hoped we would have been done by Easter. And Easter is going to come on April 4th this year, and I'm already praying for that. But it made me think about a past Easter that I had. And when I was just coming out of college and was a young youth minister still in Abilene, and we'd come back for Easter to be with my family in Fort Worth. And Mom was a big holiday person. And so she wanted us to do an Easter egg hunt. Now, me, my brothers, all my friends, we were college age and beyond. But Mom still wanted to have the big Easter egg hunt. One of my friends that was in ministry with me, uh, he was in college at the time, came with us named David. And Mom had spent the year shopping for at garage sales, and she created a prize table. And so in the Easter eggs was, was small bits of change in dollars. And what you did is you went and you hunted your Easter eggs, and that gave you money with which you got to uh, bid on the prizes at the end of the day. And so mom made it worth our, worth our while. Well, David was a fun guy, and he was pretty silly. So while once we've had the Easter egg hunt, we've all got our basket of eggs. So you've got to picture some college guys here. We're all sitting with our basket of eggs. Uh, we started playing a little silly game, and David was being silly. And so what he was doing is he was cracking the eggs open on his, uh, on his head. And some of them 
Uh, some of them had actually been those eggs that if you're really careful, you can, you can um, remove an egg without cracking the shell too much and then tape it back over. It's got like confetti and stuff in it. And he was cracking it on his head. And I saw what he was doing this time he was opening up his eggs. And so I ran to the refrigerator and I got an uncooked egg and slipped it into his basket. And he was just going through and hitting that, cracked those eggs on his head. And then there came that moment when he cracked that egg that I slipped in the basket onto his head. And it was so satisfying to watch that yolk and egg white roll down his face. And that look that came upon him when he realized what I had done. And so I took off running at that moment. And he took off in hot pursuit because he wanted revenge. Now, a couple of lessons from that. Do you know why, when he cracked that egg onto his head that the yolk came out, because that is what was in there. And do you know why that when he realized what had been done to him, Dave's response was revenge, because that's what was inside. See, one thing we have to realize, that what's in you comes out of you when life collides with you. What's in you comes out of you when life collides with you. And the question for us now, as followers of Jesus, is why when life collides with Christians, if the Holy Spirit is with us and the presence of God is with us, why does that not naturally come out? And so often we can think of stories where we've seen life come at somebody and when it cracks them, what comes out is not godly or doesn't honor God or doesn't seem to reflect the the spirit of God that we thought was in them and that's the question that I want us to deal with today as we take this second part of the series again we're in in John chapter 14 through 16 if you have your Bibles I want you to open there and I really do want to encourage you to be reading through these chapters during your personal quiet time you're going to find lots of references and lots of teachings about the Holy Spirit And remember, I said at the very beginning of this, I'm not going to be able to cover everything that Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. That would take a series of series to do that. But I did want to start where Jesus begins and with with what He teaches about the Holy Spirit. And you're going to find a lot of that really concentrated in John 14, 15, and 16. And in this passage, I want to give it a framework. Remember, it is right after the Lord's Supper has taken place and Jesus has washed His disciples' feet. And he's now moving to, uh, toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And in a few hours, he's going to be betrayed and turned over for trial and crucifixion. And he begins talking very plainly to his disciples in this in-between time. And this is horrible news. I mean, this, this brings them to grief. In fact, ten times in these chapters, Jesus is going to talk about he's going away. And you can only imagine... Because up to that moment, they thought they were on the very edge, the very cusp of him coming into his administration, into his kingdom, into his rule here on earth. And suddenly, he's talking an entirely different scenario. And it brings them grief, and it brings them anguish. And so what, what Jesus does is he gets very specific. He gives them something to hope for. John sixteen seven says this, But very truly I tell you, It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, what the case that Jesus is making there, 
is that he's going to have to go away, but because he's going away, something good, in fact, Jesus says something better is coming. That was the NIV that I just read. The, the ESV says, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. Or the New Living Translation says, it is best for you that I go away. And so what Jesus is telling us is that his going away, as much as that grieves us in person, that we're not going to have the physical presence of the disciples, we're not going to have the physical presence of Jesus, that there is something better coming, and that's why we are calling this the best gift ever, because of who he sent. And so if you'll look with me, in John chapter 14, 15 through 17. He says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, talk about that word advocate just for a second. Advocate, that's a, that's a word, it, it's the paraclete in, in the Greek. But what it means is somebody that comes alongside, somebody that assists, somebody that is there to champion for you. And you can think of the legal aspect of what it means to have an advocate by you. Someone that, that's going to champion your cause, that's not going to leave your side, it's going to be an assist. You're going to see Jesus describe him as comforter throughout. So he is promising this other part of God. There's God the Father, Jesus was in the presence, but he says when he goes away, there is another one that's coming to our side, and he's going to dwell with us. And that's why the very last part, John 14 through 17, you know, oftentimes I'll have you circle something or highlight it on your app if you're using a Bible app. John 14, 17, I want you to highlight the last part of that verse that I just read. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. This is why we call the Holy Spirit the best gift ever. Because God is going to move with us and dwell with us. And I want to talk about that idea of dwelling. In fact, I want to talk about two things today. Dwelling and filling, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling of God with us, or the indwelling, if you want to call it that, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So I'll start with the dwelling. The, this promise of God dwelling with us, and I love what Rick actually says in this. He says, it is the most anticipated promise in the entire Bible and the least celebrated by the church. The most anticipated promise in the entire Bible. And if you look at this, through all of your scriptures, you go from Genesis all the way into Revelation, you have one consistent story being told, and it's the idea that God wants to live with his people. And so, if you're familiar with the story of the Garden of Eden at creation, God creates a perfect place for his children to dwell, Adam and Eve. And it even describes in the cool of the evening, they would take a walk together. Can you imagine taking a walk with God? But it's this very intimate relationship, God coming to be with his people. Well, then that fractures when Adam and Eve disobey. But God does not give up on his hope to be with his people. And if you'll jump ahead for a while, there's a time when the people of God are enslaved in Egypt. And God comes to Moses, once again, in a presence of a holy of the, the bush on, that's on fire. And his holy presence is there. 
And God sends Moses to go reclaim his people. And as they leave Egypt, going from Egypt to what we call the promised land, is that there's a cloud by day. It's the presence of God. There's a pillar of fire by night. That's the presence of God. In fact, on that journey, God gives them instructions on how to build what's called a tabernacle. And that's a tent in many ways. But it's a tent that would be set up in the very center of the camp. And in that tent was the representation that God was in their midst, that God had set up a dwelling right alongside them. Once again, dwelling in their presence. And then as they moved into the promised land, it went from a tent to a temple. And David would build the first temple. And the temple of David would become, in many ways, a house for God. And what the idea was there, as long as the temple stood, the people of God knew that God was with them and in their presence. And inside the temple, there was even a very special place called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in once a year into the very holy of a place. And it was divided from the rest of the, the temple facility by this huge curtain. And that curtain was, was ceiling to floor and incredibly thick, and it was very ornate. And at Jesus' crucifixion, because once again, now Jesus comes to be in a prison. He's God in the flesh. And so it goes from a, a temple of, of stone to a temple of flesh and bone. And Jesus comes in the presence of God, and then on his crucifixion, at the moment he's dying, that curtain rips in two. And the Holy of Holies is now exposed, or it's opened up. There's now access for all. Once again, it's an invitation to be in the presence of God. And then what Jesus is saying here is says that the Holy Spirit's going to come on his people. And he's going to dwell in his people. And that's the promise that we hang on to today. Now, when you get to the very end of the book, you, you get to Revelation, and heaven is not described as a place where God comes and rescues us from the planet and he takes us all away. No, heaven is the new heaven and the new earth, and it's described in the book of Revelation as the new heaven coming down to earth, the new Jerusalem coming down to earth, and God setting up his presence once again, restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden, that he's going to dwell with his people once again in a very physical sense. Well, in between time, we're given this promise of the dwelling being with us and the Holy Spirit. And what I want you to know is what the promise is, what God is doing there is when he says the Holy Spirit's going to come, and Jesus is going to send this Holy Spirit. It's a promise of life. Because that's what the crucifixion was for, was to secure this gift of life for us. In fact, if you read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Did you catch that part? The law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's exactly what takes place at the coming of the Holy Spirit, which comes in what we call Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, all the disciples have been gathered together, and they're, they're going to launch the ministry today, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. In Acts chapter 2, you have this incredible place, where in Acts 2, 4, where they're all gathered and it says, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And here's this indwelling, this promise of God to come be with them. And here it is, and what happens as you read that is 3,000 people that day coming to a relationship with Jesus, coming to this relationship with the Spirit and life. And there's something very interesting to note. At, back in the Old Testament, when the people were on that journey from the Egypt to the Promised Land, when they were camped out at the base of what's known as Mount Sinai, and God gives the law, it's not long before they break the law, before they start worshiping a golden calf, and that brings a judgment on them. And that day, 3,000 of them died because of that rebellion. So look at the parallel. The law came, and 3,000 died. Now the Spirit comes, God dwelling with us, and the Spirit comes, and 3,000 receive life. They're drawing a comparison between the two. To remember, when the law comes, there's death. But when the Spirit comes, when God shows up, there's life. So here's the unbelievable thought that the Lord wants to be present with us. And He's going to be in us. And He's going to fill us with, what he's, with his, his ministry in the Spirit. And it's in this filling that we're going to receive from Him. It's in the filling that's different than the dwelling, but inside this filling that He's going to come in and He's going to, the Lord of Lords, the one that should be in a temple, that should be worshipped in a temple, is going to be worshipped inside of our life. And now, we're going to be the temple. We're going to be the representation of Him throughout this. And so, two incredible thoughts from that. First incredible thought is that the Lord of Lords, the one that spoke all this in existence, wants to live inside of me, wants to live inside of you. But the second thought is just as compelling, is that he's going to receive our permission to do it. That he wants us to be willing to allow him to do that. He's not going to force himself on it. So there's the dwelling, God's presence with us, and that is a promise. Now I want to talk about the filling that comes with that. See, the question is, when life collides with us, what's going to spill out of us, and will it be the Holy Spirit that pours out of us? Because you have to understand that even though God dwells with us, there's lots of things that can drain our dwelling, right? That can drain us of this sense of being connected to God and His presence with us. Sin. And especially if we have any hidden sin in our life, it saps away at that. Because God's not going to take up residence in a holy place and we allow sin to exist at the, in the same place. So sin does that. Circumstances, and boy, we've been through a, you know, more than a year now of circumstances that just feel like it's taking its toll and it's draining on us. Other people, we can have relationships that drain that sense of dwelling, of God being with us, that, that, that sense that He's there for us the burdens that we carry, the anxieties that we carry, all these things come together and they can sap that dwelling from us. And so how do we be filled with the Spirit? How, how, do, we, how do we have our 
filling of the, of the Spirit. So I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to tell you that this, this is a strange verse, and I know that most of you have heard it in a different context. You've heard it in a context more akin to what has to do with, with um, worship and the kind of songs that we sing. And for some of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, you may read over the first part too quickly because you think it's all about the second part and what kind of music we should sing. I'm telling you that this is a verse that Paul is writing to us to tell us about the first part. And what he says is very strange. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 And notice what he says there. He compares being filled with the Spirit to being drunk on wine. In fact, that was an accusation that the first disciples received on the day of Pentecost. When they received the Holy Spirit they began to speak in a way that everybody else thought perhaps they were drunk. And then Peter gets up and sets the record straight and says, we're not drunk, we're being consumed and filled by the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean, why would Paul use the word drunk to be filled? Well, think about the effect of being drunk or the effect of alcohol. It's when you come under the influence of a different agent. You know, that's why they call it a DUI, driving under the influence. You're not under your own control anymore. And so Paul's being very clear. Instead of being under the influence of something like an alcohol or for them, the wine, be under the influence, be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And so he's inviting us into that. And what you need to notice here is that we're not commanded to get the Holy Spirit. That's the dwelling part. God's going to come and He's going to dwell and He's sending His Spirit. But we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's why the idea of being filled is an act of submission. That there's a way that I can lead my life in such a way where I keep God at arm's length. Now, I want Him near for when I, when I need Him near. But I don't want him to fully consume me. I don't want him to fully control me. I want to keep God, I'm going to keep his spirit at arm's length from me and not give full submission. So it's his fill versus my will. And my will comes into play. This is why I say it's such an incredible idea to think that God wants to dwell inside of me and inside of my life, and yet he's going to seek my submission before he does that, before he fills me in this way. And so it's very easy to start to cordon off parts of my heart, heart, parts of my life to God. Maybe if you've ever had a house that you either sold or bought and you, you allow an inspection to go through your house. When you allow an inspection to go through your house or when you consent to the inspection, you don't get to say to the inspector, okay, I want you to look at the first three rooms but stay out of the back room. Or stay out of the basement or stay out of this room or this place. They get to crawl in the attic. They get to crawl under the floorboards. They get to turn on all the water faucets, turn on all the lights. They get to inspect the whole house. The question is, does God have full reign in my life, in my heart? Because so many of us are trying to hang on to parts of our life. Maybe it's a secret sin. Maybe it's how we do our finances. Maybe it's how we engage in our marriage. Maybe it's how we love and parent our kids. Something that we're still holding on to and we're control, and we're not bringing that in submission yet. Maybe it's our business life. 
Maybe it's our thought life. Maybe it's the speech that we use. Whatever it is, will I allow the Holy Spirit to fully fill me? Or will I try to hang on control and keep the Holy Spirit contained in my life? And see, this is where we get so afraid that if we release control, it's going to make us look weird. And what I want you to know is that when somebody's life is consumed by the Holy Spirit, when they're filled with the Spirit, when they give full submission to that and release control to God, they don't look weird. And, and the first thing is, they don't have to go around telling anybody either. If you encounter somebody that says, yes, I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I'd be careful because what the Holy Spirit brings is humility and the Holy Spirit doesn't ever bring credit to me, but will always reflect credit back to God. And that's what the Holy Spirit's job is, to point us back to Jesus all the time. And so, so if I'm full of the Holy Spirit, then what means what's going on in my life is not that somebody looks at me and goes, that's weird. They look at me and they give God the glory. They give Jesus the glory. I, I don't get pats on the back. They get, God and Jesus get, get the glory because that's the job of the Holy Spirit. That's what he invites us into. And so if we'll allow this submission to take place, and this is why I love what Romans fifteen thirteen says. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's it look like to be filled with the Spirit? According to Romans, what Paul's writing here, it makes you joyful. It makes you peaceful. And it makes you hopeful. See, it's not weird. It's not something I've got to protect against. So let me come back to the question that we started with. Why then do so many of us, when life collides with us, something besides the Spirit pours out of us. Why is that so different for us? Because you've been given the gift. We've got the dwelling, the presence of the Spirit, and all that comes with God being by our side, no longer divided, no longer having to go through a high priest, but God is present. But the problem is so many of us haven't unwrapped the gift. Have you ever received a gift that you never unwrapped? Maybe you just left it sitting there. You assumed you knew what was inside of it. Have you ever given a gift that perhaps you spent a lot of time picking out and selecting? And maybe it was for a wedding, for a baby shower or something. And then when you showed up at their house to visit later, you don't see the gift anywhere. Or maybe you've had the reverse where the gift that you knew somebody had given you, you've tucked away in a drawer, but you know they're going to want to see it up on the wall or up on the shelf or out in the middle of the room. And so you've got to go find it again because you've got it contained and hidden away. See, the problem with the Holy Spirit is most of us, we still have it wrapped, and that's the submission part of it. We haven't redeemed the gift yet. Have you ever had a gift card that you received that you never cashed in? Do you know why gift cards are so well-liked by the stores and the, the places that sell them? It's because so many of them go unredeemed. In fact, I looked up, online between 2000 and 2015 they estimate there was 45.7 billion dollars billion dollars of unredeemed gift cards so a gift has been given 
but it's not been received. It's not been unwrapped in that. And so that's where the submission comes in. That's where we set my will aside to receive his fill. To allow him to have full access to my heart. To allow him to have full access to my life. Not that I work harder at that, but that I submit. I submit to what Jesus is calling me to. I submit to his invitation. And I become receptive to this gift to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when life collides with me, when life collides with you, there's a spilling out of the Spirit. I've got an illustration here I want to do. I'm, I'm ripping this one off straight from Rick, actually. I loved it when I saw it, and so I want to share it with you. It involves this. And picture these two glasses as your life. And here's two lives, two believers. And I have these, these wrapped tablets. These are Alka-Seltzer tablets. And they're going to represent the Holy Spirit. And one of them, God is coming through with His promise, and He's going to dwell in His person. But the gift is unwrapped. And so, though they, they have possession of the Spirit... God is with them in His presence. He's true to His Word. He's not abandoning them. You see little difference in their life. But the invitation is to unwrap the Spirit. And allow it to fill and consume And now there's a life where it's a noticeable, effective difference to all that are seen. And so when life collides with you, will you submit in such a way that what pours out of you and becomes evident to all those that know you and those that are just now meeting you, that there's something different that, that something is at work in your life and you're under the influence of a different kind of agent. That the Holy Spirit is filling you in a way where you're hopeful, peaceful, and you're joyful. That's the invitation. That's the best gift ever. I want to pray for us. Then in the middle of this prayer, we're going to have our song sing and we're going to let the song be a continuation of the prayer. So if you would, Join me, please. Heavenly Father, I invite you into my life. I know you're present with us. We ask that you would dwell with us and fill us, that we'd be filled by your Spirit. That's our prayer.